Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bull City Soccer Show. I am your host as always, Zach Leishner, and I have a great interview for you guys today. I got the chance to sit down with Tim, with Tim Belkiki of the You're Smarter Than Us podcast. Tim covers and podcasts about Asheville City Soccer Club of the NPSL. Uh, we got the opportunity to talk a little bit about lower division soccer here in the Carolinas and talk about the differences and, and some of the similarities with Tobacco Road FC and Asheville City Soccer Club. So, hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, as always, you can find the show on Twitter at Bull City Sock Show. That is Bull City Soc Show, and you can follow us, or you can find us on. If you have any questions about the show, you can always email us at bullcitysoccershow at gmail.com. Again, that is the bullcitysoccershow at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, and I'm gonna go ahead and plug that interview for you guys right here. Alrighty, well, Tim, thank you very much for joining me on the Bull City Soccer Show. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me, Zach. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we. I know that you and me have been trying to plan to, to get something <laughs> going for a while now, and we can finally get to it. But you have been um, very involved uh, on the fan side of things with Asheville City in the NPSL and have started your own podcast, kind of uh, dedicated to covering the, the two clubs now in Asheville. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit about what it's like? or what has been like uh, starting your own podcast and kind of covering the uh, two clubs? Yeah, so it, it's been interesting. I, of course, have been a, a soccer fan for an extended period of time. Having lived in Western North Carolina, it, it's a little bit of a professional sports oasis. You often have transient individuals who come and move to Western North Carolina, which has always been a hub of tourism. So, I, I mean, Nashville itself basically is, was built by others um, coming to town and enjoying themselves so much that they basically set their roots down. So it, it's this weird where you kind of bring your own professional sports team and then you're in this like Bermuda Triangle of Atlanta, Charlotte, Raleigh's kind of off to the side. There's nothing really north of us until you hit Cincinnati. So uh, uh, especially soccer-wise, I, I haven't really had anything to call home here mm-hmm. um, for a long period of time. I'm, I've never been a huge MLS fan. I, I kind of thought I wanted to give it a shot, but I didn't really understand things for a long time. And then the more I learned, the less it kind of, the more it just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. So in 2000, I want to say 16, they announced that Asheville City was going to, or uh, that Asheville was going to get a semi-pro team. Got really excited. I just moved here. I was. I. I think uh, the ownership told me I was one of the first, like two or three people to buy a season kit. Um, even that idea into itself, I just thought was phenomenal. Went to the first game, did the march from High Wire up to Memorial, and they just had me. I, I knew it was something I wanted to be involved in. And I didn't necessarily know if I was going to be able to be part of the um, supporters group proper. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a younger person group. Um, I, I knew I wanted to help them, but I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to be the sort of person like organizing events and you know telling other people, hey, we need this TIFO, we need this two stick. But I wanted to make my own little contribution. And something that I don't know now for maybe like five, six, seven years, um, I've just been infatuated with podcasts. And I, I kind of saw that as my niche. So I reached out to the ownership and said, is anybody doing this? They said, no. 
Um, we would love for somebody to do it as long as they kept it independent. Um, I've really appreciated the way the ownership um, has pushed back anytime that they feel like, hey, we might be crossing a line here for you. Like, we don't want you to ever be put in a position where anybody can call you on anything. We truly want you to stay independent. We'll give you all the access you want, but we want to keep your um, integrity intact. So I reached out to the supporters group, um, and they, they were completely behind it. And then I reached out to Johnny Wakefield in Soccer and Sweet Tea. Alex Hamilton had done a decent amount of writing for Soccer and Sweet Tea the first year of Asheville City. And I didn't want to step on his toes, but I, I, I didn't want to um, replace it. I just kind of wanted to supplement his coverage. So last year, we started the You're Smarter Than Us podcast. You can uh, find us on Twitter. It's the only social media we have um, at your underscore smarter. And uh, it, it's just, it's been a blessing. And I've really, really, really enjoyed it. Well, awesome. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think it was 2017 that uh, at the time when Soccer and Sweet Tea was still very new, and I think it was the website's second, see either first full year or second year, um, law after they launched the website. And I remember Johnny saying that uh, Asheville City and Tobacco Road FC were probably the two of the smaller clubs that were getting a lot of the chunk of views and traffic for the website. And I always thought that to be very interesting because them being uh, at the time they had a couple, they, they had more Charlotte writers than everyone else in the rest of the Carolinas that covered clubs. And even though the website had was covering three different professional teams, the two technically amateur clubs were kind of getting the most traffic at that time. And to me, that was very interesting. And, and to see the similarities in um, the two clubs, it, there's been a lot, I think, recently that uh, that there's been enough to talk about, at least. And I think prior to at least for Tobacco Road, um, they switched from the NPSL to join, the at the time, the PDL, uh, that was part of the United Soccer League, and they left before them. Uh, Tobacco Road and Myrtle Beach actually left the league together at the same time before Asheville and Greenville both came online. So it would be, it's always interesting to think about, you know, what the landscape right now would look like if, all these clubs in the Carolinas stayed in the PSL before Asheville and Greenville both came online. But um, one thing that I did want to talk about, Tim, was um, Asheville typically is a, it's, it's its own market, correct? And I know when they talk about TV markets and you see TV ratings sometimes, Asheville and Greenville are technically in, in the same TV market, correct? For our NBC and CBS stations, yes, um, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand the um, logistics behind it per se. But our local ABC station is actually here in Asheville proper, um, right in Biltmore Park, and for whatever reason, we do actually get our NBC station out of Greenville. Because mm -hmm. sometimes on Twitter, I see that uh, some of the uh, Premier League games get uh, significant views in in Greenville and. And you like to kind of chime in that it's Greenville and Asheville, and, and it's just not its own market because here in here in Raleigh, at least for Durham, Durham is so close to Raleigh that everything that at least happens in town is kind of uncovered up by Raleigh, and and besides the only professional team in Durham being the Durham Bulls, it, it they the soccer team gets very 
overshadowed by the collegiate, uh, the local colleges and uh, the other professional sports in town. And, and Asheville doesn't seem to really have that as Asheville Cities is one of the only uh, major sports in town and there's not a, another large city near them or near Asheville to uh, take, take away that spotlight of being a professional club. Yeah. Um, so we, <laughs> Hey, I, I always like to, um, make fun of our neighbors slightly to the South because they, they do certainly like to toot their own horn, but mm-hmm. often forget, um, that we, we have about two thirds their population, but we do it in one city and it takes three cities for them to get there. Um, and we do very regularly end up in the top 10 premiership views um, for big games. That last big, um, what was it, the Manchester United Arsenal game? I think Greenville's market, again, was uh, six or seven. And I would like to think that Asheville definitely p- played a big part in that. And yeah, it, it just like you were saying, it goes back that um, for a lot of what Asheville does, we basically do unto ourselves. Um, we... Um, politically, we're actually gerrymandered into the west side of Charlotte, basically, um, mm-hmm. not Charlotte City. It's, it's very strange, but we're in the same like political district as like Gastonia, even though um, we have nothing to do with them. But outside of that, uh, we, we really are just kind of on an oasis. Um, Hickory is about an hour east. Charlotte's two hours. Greenville's an hour uh, south. There's really nothing north. I mean, I eventually you run into Johnson City, and the, the next thing west is uh, uh, Western Carolina over in college and then Tennessee. So, yeah, we, we, we've struggled for sports. It's, it's one of the things it, – it's one of the reasons I truly do believe that soccer uh, could theoretically eventually, quote-unquote, make it here in Asheville because mm-hmm. soccer does a lot of things that other sports don't do. There's – um, we had in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, mostly the early 2000s, I think, we ha- actually had a um, one of the first D-League NBA uh, minor league teams here, the Asheville Altitude. And then we even had a minor league hockey team for a while, the Asheville Smoke. Mm-hmm. And we have actually the oldest continuously in use minor league baseball stadium in McCormick Field. Um, with, and the tours have traditionally done well. But the other two minor league teams only lasted a little while and failed out. But there aren't really any sports bars in town, um, even uh, bars that kind of lean heavily in that direction. We used to have a Hooters, and it didn't last that long. Um, in Asheville proper, there's not a lot of public golf courses even. It, it's just not a very sportsy town. Mm-hmm. Um, it it it's changing a little bit. Uh, some of the breweries actually have been showing uh, NFL football a little bit more. I kind of, I actually kind of think that's more of like the Charlottevacation of the area, South Slope specifically. A lot of tourists come in and they want to see the Panthers games, things of that nature. But it, it really is soccer that kind of cuts across all those demographics. A lot of um, brings together, you know, just like everywhere. There's a reason it's the world's. Uh, most popular sport it, it cuts across this culture and the things that um, divide us not just as a community but geographically demographically age religion race and and we see that at 
every Asheville City game. And it, it's one of my favorite things to do is to look over at the supporter stand and see, you know, a, a microcosm of Asheville all in one kind of like 75 by 50 foot stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at least the scene over here, <clears throat> uh, Duke, even though it is a college, they they treat their basketball team like it is it basically is an NBA team. And <laughs> yes, at this time of the year, that's all that is the hype around here is 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 basketball twenty four seven right now. And even though there are the Hurricanes and the Durham Bulls are probably Durham's main event during the summertime is there's not a lot of other activities going on in the city and and where uh the durham bulls athletic park is is smack dab in the middle of the city and over time you have seen that everything has kind of been built around the the baseball park which has been really cool to see but then you kind of see that them being the the main attraction for all these years has kind of taken the limelight out of other sporting events here in the in the city during the summertime so it's been really tough i think for tobacco road to kind of poke around and and get some of the eyeballs and on the club and even though soccer has been growing here a lot in the triangle it at least in durham it's one of those things that's still slowing and the infrastructure at least isn't all the way there compared to raleigh but what is the infrastructure of soccer like in Asheville with maybe the number of youth clubs in the area or the ability to go out and actually uh, play soccer in town. Yeah. So I actually think that's one of um, it. it, It's a bit of Asheville certainly did not put the cart before the horse, the um, horse drug the cart to Asheville city, which I, I think is the, the single reason that it's actually working. The Asheville has, I don't have the exact number, but Asheville has probably the state's most successful adult um, amateur soccer league. Uh, we, we, we have pro rel within it. I think it's like up to seven tiers now. It, it starts even with the youth clubs. The youth clubs, a player can work their way up through it. We have three or four um, youth academies in town, Highlands, uh, Shield, um, there, there's one more that I'm forgetting the name of, but uh, the ABA YS and then the ABA SA. So both the youth and the adult leagues here in town are well established for the men and the women too. It, it's not uh, that that's and it, eventually we kind of lead into that, but the it, it's something that's supported on both sides and none. Even in those amateur adult leagues, not the men are not treated. They don't get any sort of priority over the women. And, and that kind of pays itself forward eventually. Last year when the Asheville Women's Club came in and you saw that club, even though so, so often they were getting rainy Wednesday night games and uh, Friday night games instead of Saturday night games, and they still were pulling in almost the exact same attendance as the men. And again, part of that is because the club did not um, 
did not differentiate sponsors, did not, uh, it, it was not separate, but equal. It was just equal. And I think even fans noticed it because things, those games became um, a cultural event. So often I would speak to people and just say, Hey, don't forget there's a national city game tonight. And they're like, yeah, we're absolutely playing on coming. Who's playing the men or the women. And, I think in the long run that needs to be remedied because I think fans need to be educated on knowing if it's the men or women and they need to know who the players are. And, you know, when the Charlotte Eagles come to town, that is probably a more serious game than when the discoveries come. And Mm -hmm. if they go to see the men play Chattanooga, I mean, that's a big game and uh, it's a, it could have more of an impact on the table rather than Nashville fans need to know these things to become more invested in the game but at the present moment they just know that you know Asheville treats soccer professionally even though it is an amateur club and they can go up there and they can have good food and good beer and a beautiful sunset and and be treated to a professional product even if um, the status of it is amateur but the, the infrastructure all starts at those adult leagues, um, even to the point where um, the combination of the adult leagues here in town, the youth leagues, and now Asheville City's become a really big sponsor for it. Every year we actually hold, uh, this was the 10th year this past year, of the Beer City Cup, which is actually the world's largest seven-on-seven, seven, well, maybe not the world's, but at least the country's largest seven-on-seven um, amateur competition. It's uh, three days long. It's international. This year we had four teams from England, one from France, and maybe a few other from the UK. Uh, we had them all the way from uh, Seattle and California, Florida, obviously, Georgia, Tennessee, New York, Pennsylvania. Um, I think it was a hundred different cl- uh, teams in like 13 different categories, all the way up to 50 and over, an open cup. Um, it's always phenomenal so the need and want for soccer in this area has always been there and the the credit that i always give jimmy and uh alan and jordan and uh ryan uh, they 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 didn't try to force soccer to happen here i think they truly just sat around and, and they were wondering why somebody else wasn't always already doing it and that's kind of always the genesis of a great idea. You know, I, I want this to exist. My friends want this to exist, but nobody else is doing it. Well, let's just do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would say that I think, tobacco, at least for Tobacco Road's case, is that maybe the need for, at least Durham, separ- separating Durham from Raleigh, uh, the case has been that the pro or the team in Durham doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure. They have a, an affiliation in a way or a partnership with uh, the, I think the only local uh, youth club in town with Triangle United. Uh, there might be a few more in Chapel Hill, but that's a, still another good 20, 30 minutes uh, down the road and not necessarily in the same county as <clears throat> Durham is. But here in Raleigh, at least, we have four or five other club youth clubs in town that you can uh, choose from and they all play at different facilities and you don't have to kind of piggyback off one another to to fight for field space and even though it will be hard to to start another youth club here and say carry there the there's tons and tons of soccer parks and 
excellent facilities here in town that the the pro team can practice at, and then it's still nice enough that the rest of NCFC youth can pr play there in the afternoons. And that's definitely not the case in Durham. And the field space has been something that the club has talked about kind of doing in the future or or maybe looking at exploring their own uh, options for academies, and especially with the new USL Academy that just came online the other week ago. Field space is one of the things that the club is going to need to address if they want to kind of step into their maybe having their own youth club or if they really want to help out uh, Triangle United in a way. But definitely, it's, at least for comparing these two clubs, uh, the youth game and the adult game have been on opposite sides of the spectrum, whereas Asheville has had <clears throat> a lot of success with the adult leagues and they have enough field space, whereas in Durham, it's the men's club is here, but where can the where can where can all the kids go and play? And that's something that I want to see help improve here in the area. And that's also part of Durham's history of just kind of being a uh, over the years, kind of being a poor city and not having that infrastructure all the way around for for everything almost. But now, what is the stadium situation like uh, for Asheville City? Oh, so um, no, I, it's I, a I, it's a crazy one, isn't it? With with the first teams <laughs> and and everything else. Yeah, it's um, it's not ideal. That's for sure. Um, I think I think the closest thing I, I don't know that anybody in the NPSL honestly has an airtight stadium deal that they are very proud of. I mean, even even some of the most amazing clubs, you know, you look at like what the founder uh, founders cup clubs are doing. Um, I mean, at the present moment, the Cosmos, one of the most historic clubs in the country, they're back out on Long Island again at Hofstra. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Chattanooga is always in this weird relationship with Finley. Detroit's got Keyworth. That finally just got new turf, by the way. If you haven't seen it, it's absolutely gorgeous. But Asheville is in a situation where the city owns Memorial Stadium. Um, it is in desperate, desperate need of renovations. It is a public park, so there's nothing that prevents anybody from coming in and out. And basically, any time of the day, it gets opened in the morning and gets closed at night. Um, it, it, it has drainage issues. They fixed, <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm air quoting the word fixed, uh, part of the pitch last year because they, in an amazing happenstance, managed to make um, fake grass have dead spots on it, which I'm not quite sure how they managed. And they, they did some repairs to that. But a couple years ago, I think in 2014, I mean, 2016, the city did, uh, the citizens voted for a $5 million bond to renovate Memorial. That money is just sitting there, uh, ready to be used like any good city government. They're um, already six months behind their own plan that they put out there. They were supposed to have public input back in October. It's now March and it still hasn't happened. Um, they have hired an architecture firm that has done some, apparently some really amazing stuff. They redid ECU's Olympic complex, I think four or five different, uh, football fields around the Charlotte area at high schools and a few other pre pretty major, um, complex, uh, renovations. So by their, uh, 
you know, scale level, I guess, in terms of creating things like that. It looks really, really solid. There's a pretty, um, the, the design that's out there right now is a very, very utilitarian design for the stadium. It's not soccer specific, which nobody, I think, is asking for it to be soccer specific, but they would like it to be sporting event friendly. And by that, I just mean um, it's a very old stadium as it is, and the the restrooms are very, very dilapidated. There's not proper dressing rooms. There are dressing rooms, but they're not real dressing rooms. It's more of just like a room in the back of a um, brick house, basically. Mm-hmm. And and we, we would like it, – it's really the only place in town – in the city, uh, within the city limits, that you could hold a sporting event like this, and and not just soccer, but but truly anything. Excuse me. And we we don't want the city to, we, we as a fan base, and I'm sure the club too. They, we don't want the city to do away with that option. And it is right above uh, McCormick Field, which the city also owns, and the city already you know, has to give them a lot of dates, which is, I'm sure, disruptive to that neighborhood. But I I don't necessarily think that a soccer game is any more disruptive than a baseball game. And I understand it's an extra, you know, potentially 16, 20, 24 dates a year. But I I think that kind of comes with living in a proper city central. So Mm -hmm. we we really hope that when, when that goes to public input and we're allowed to speak about the options of putting a track around the field or narrowing the field potentially instead of having it be, um, it actually is FIFA regulated right now. I don't think that was done on purpose per se, but it is actually those dimensions right now. And we hope it stays that way. Um, yeah, no, no high school uses it, so it's not something that needs to be uh, high school football sized permanently or with football lines down or anything like that. But um, we we would like to see it renovated with with potentially soccer in mind. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say that Asheville has it a little bit better than uh, here in Durham. With now, Asheville doesn't have <clears throat> the largest the largest uh, the stand stands at least correct. No, Memorial holds 2,500 as a kind of max. Um, if I had to guess, I would it would not shock me to say that we've probably gone over that once or twice. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a 2,500-person max. The one side is uh, the supporter section is a I, – I think it's 14 rows deep and about 20 yards thick. And, now, and that's the really that tall one, correct? Yes, yes, yes. And that's the one if you go all the way to the top of and look backwards, you can look over downtown in McCormick Field. Wow. It's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous view. On the other side of the pitch, there's a series of like, con- it's a brick wall and then concrete bleachers that's just kind of built into the mountainside. Mm-hmm. When they renovate Memorial, literally all of that's just going to be raised to the ground basically and and completely built back up so it really will be a a five million dollar kind of um phoenix rising from its own ashes figuratively and literally to a certain degree okay well at least here in durham um we i believe the stadium is sixteen thousand. um so but the club only sits on one side and has a nice uh press box and a lot of uh, handicap areas with an elevator and it's very nice you get 
excellent views of the pitch, but the turf is probably the most lopsided turf I've ever seen walking <laughs> on it. And, and there is a uh, track around it as well, which isn't, mm. isn't the nicest, but it, it, um, it, it does make this uh, stadium feel a lot larger than what it really is um, for only being 16,000 seats. But definitely, um, the we do have permanent football lines, even though high schools don't really play there. Uh, I believe Central and A&T kind of have a their rivalry game there. And I, I think Central in the past used to play there, but not really anymore. And this the stadium is really just falling apart, and the county doesn't really seem to be doing anything with it. Uh, a lot of the paint on the, the uh, stands is falling apart, and the... Last year, they had to rope off a lot of the bleachers as I don't know what happened the season beforehand, but they're all just kind of laying on the ground, falling apart a little bit. But this year, I know the plan is to try to jumble everyone up and within the stands to kind of compact them, kind of like what Asheville does with the supporters section and try to make it feel like there's a lot of people in the stands if we get everyone to sit together. Because in the past when the club has had 500 people come they you know spread out along a 8,000 person stadium and it and it looks like there's no one really there and it looks bad for pictures and it's one of those things that we wish that there was a better situation in town but like we talked about before with the infrastructure there's just nothing really around town or if you wanted to go farther out of town and play in a in a high school stadium there's nothing within city limits that that we could use unless we went the baseball route, but um, it's very interesting to hear that, or I guess it's not, well, every city has their issues of getting uh, major projects uh, done on time, but I'm really interested to see what the stadium is going to look like once it's uh, finished being built. Now, do you know when it's supposed to be completed or what their deadline is on that? Oh, goodness gracious. So the original um, timeline, I think, was 18 months from um, demolition to basically reopening. Um, the Again, the original timeline that's still present online, which just amazes me, uh, basically, I think it was in September of this year it was going to be raised. So it would have been September to September and then March. And so theoretically, it would have been back open for the um, 2021 season. Theoretically, Theoretically. if everything had gone right, you know, it it would have basically Asheville City could have been the organization that could have broken it in or reintroduced it to the community. It it would not shock me if the um, demolition still happened in potentially October, November, December. But I would just safely assume that it, it probably wouldn't be out of commission for about two seasons um, for Asheville City's sake. Um, nobody else truly, truly uses it for anything to the degree that Asheville City does. I think it's been an interesting, um, the, the more I've dug into it and the more it, it's multi-use, it's, again, anybody can rent it per se, save it for the day. And the other organizations that use it, um, which Asheville City all, always tries to keep in mind, they, they, they don't want to become, you know, faux landlords of this thing by any stretch of the imagination. And so they actually do 
frequently work with ultimate frisbee leagues in town the uh, youth clubs that sometimes use it for their exhibition matches beer city which always happens over labor day so it's well after the npsl season or wpsl season but they still try to keep all of that in mind um this past uh, year uh this past after the season last year but before it got really cold they actually held a concert up there jason isbell came to town and that that's the first time i ever heard of memorial stadium being used for a concert which i i think i don't know that anybody would have thought of it if it wasn't for Asheville city so i i really truly do think Asheville city um even though i've heard the rates that they're charged are kind of criminally low and i'm sure they don't want me to hear me say that and the city you know might want to raise those rates mm-hmm. but um I also think that kind of works against the club in certain ways because what what they're paying in for the dates that they do get is, is basically a drop in the bucket in terms of like an overall operating cost for the city's park and recreations, which kind of keeps their capital, um, their political capital, their political sway kind of low because they're not really doing a lot to elevate the parks and rec department. But it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. We're not going to pay more than you charge, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I, I, again, though, I, I really, truly do believe the club is the only organization I see on a, on a pretty weekly basis um, from what, basically April until August um, using a city park in the way that it does that brings out just so much of the city and so much of what makes Asheville in my opinion, the best city in the state. Mm-hmm. Now, with, I think it was maybe a month or two ago, Asheville released the news about their academy for the men's and women's club. Now, can mm-hmm. you kind of walk me through what is that is like and what the relationship that is like with some of the other clubs and the youth clubs in the area? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely, extremely excited about this because, so a couple of years ago after the U.S. men's national team failed to qualify for the World Cup, literally the next day, Asheville City put out an official, I want to call it a press release, but it was like an official statement. And it, it basically talked about how uh, it, it, the loss stung and not being in the World Cup hurt and... Asheville City was going to do everything it could to help remedy the situation. And this was after one year of play in an amateur league. And I thought they had done really well, but I thought this was a very, very self-righteous comment and or a statement by them saying that, you know, Asheville City could could play a part in making the World Cup. You know, I, I kind of was like, stay in your own lane, do what you do very well, but like, don't don't make uh, comments on more of a meta situation mm-hmm. like that. And what I didn't realize is that even at that point, the club was already um, thinking globally, but acting locally. They just couldn't announce it yet. And one of the very first things that they did, maybe like a month or two later, was announce the women's club. And this kind of added equity to the community. Um, it, it, raised, it elevated uh, the women in the community to, again, with the intention of um, being equals. And the really, really phenomenal thing about the women who came in was that the, the men's club was started by six friends 
who had grown up together. I mean, they, they just were buddies per se that liked soccer and the NPSL has that really, you know, achievable um, entry level of just, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 and you can start a club. And so they were able to start a club. Well, the women, their ownership group, they, they were all friends and had been for an extremely long period of time, but they brought a certain pedigree with them. Um, you're talking about Stacey Enos, who was a former, U.S. Women's National Team member. She was on the very first team that played over in Italy in 1986 or 88 or something like that. It was a 2-0 loss. She played left back or right back. Um, Lydia Vandenberg, Megan Burke, who played internationally before, all three of them played professionally in their career. So it, it was this kind of like professionalism meets pedigree. It was a perfect storm. So now you've got a men's and women's club. Um, you know, Ryan already, the, the men's ownership already knew that they were going to start the Just Play initiative, which um, was highlighting opportunities in the community to um, help spread, not, not grow the game. Um, I'm very hesitant to use that term because I feel like it's been very weaponized and kind of um, adopted by corporate individuals as a um, tool to, to, um, yeah, spread the game in their own image. And so I don't necessarily think they're growing the game as much as kind of, again, providing equity to those who just didn't have the, uh, we, you know, you were using the term infrastructure, the infrastructure to succeed in the game. So one of the things they did was for every season kit sold, um, it's $130. You can get into all the men's and women's games with that kit and you get the kit, but it also put a soccer ball at the feet of an underserved youth in the community. They have street games throughout the year um, at different city events, all these different kind of um, things that uh, just helps, again, solidify the infrastructure so that everybody can participate in it. They're not really growing the game as much as they're just making the game better in our community. And so one of the things that they really wanted to do was to disrupt the pay-to-play model, um, even though they are very strong partners with a few of the academies in town, youth clubs in town that are obviously pay-to-play. They wanted to help in a, an area that maybe very good players in the country fall out because of a lack of a bridge. And, and by that, I mean your high school students that are eyeing college programs, whether they be D2, NAIA, or even D1, but they're going from you know a small rural high school in Western North Carolina to a small rural college somewhere else. And they're kind of skipping exposure to professional training techniques. They're skipping exposure to a different style of coaching even. And so what they did is um, this upcoming year um, to buy alcohol at a National City game, you'll have to buy a wristband. I don't know what the price is. I can't imagine it'll be more than a dollar or two. But you multiply this over oh gosh, what is it, 16 home games, if 500 people per game buy this wristband, that's going to be you know, however much money that is. And that money's going to actually go back into the Asheville um, City Academy. And this is going to bring 30 young men and 30 young women into the sphere of 
the actual city men and women's clubs um, operations. So this will include everything um, like the European model of after the first team trains and that last kind of like 15, 20 minutes is actually going to be kind of a joint training session. Um, they will partake in uh, video lessons, video trainings, um, uh, have lessons on nutrition. They'll, they'll be exposed to different styles of coaching, you know, so whether it just be the women who might be coming in from a high school, you know, uh, Lisa Marie Woods, who will be our women's coach this year. She isn't over the academy proper, but she certainly will be interacting with those players and, and just that interaction unto itself. I mean, she's played in Norway. She's played around the world um, in, I think, four or five different countries professionally. That's just something that you're not getting if you're coming out of, like, Franklin High School in the middle of Western North Carolina. Mm-hmm. We have um, uh, young men and women from North Florida, uh, uh, Eastern Tennessee, South Virginia. This is not a Western North Carolina kind of academy. It, it truly is a, a opportunity for everybody to come to this area and get that exposure. And additionally, we hope what it's going to inspire is this kind of snake eating its own tail where these these players will come in, they'll get this exposure, they'll go back out, and, and they're going to do a little bit of recruiting for the club itself because when they go back to North Florida, whether it's to a college or to a high school and tell their peers oh my gosh, what they're doing up in Asheville is just phenomenal. It's just going to inspire more and more people. And so you're you're going to get fans doing recruiting, coaches doing recruiting, and then best of all, players doing recruiting. So I, I'm out of everything to look forward to this upcoming season, seeing how the academy develops and its impact on the club and culture in the city is probably number one on my list. Now, you said before about the wristbands. Now, is that per game, or is that kind of like a season ticket type deal where you buy the wristband, you're able to drink at all the games? Or uh, no, from my understanding, it will be per game. Okay, okay, that's that's a cool concept that I haven't heard too much of. Now, do other clubs in NPSL do that, or is this kind of a Ashles the first ones doing it? From what I understand, this is actually the the age range that this academy um, it's very European. Um, this, this, it's very, very common over in Europe when, where you have these like U17s, U18s, U20s, U21s, U23s, et cetera, et cetera. Most, any, any of the other academies that I've seen in the NPSL that are funded at this level, which is literally free, um, is, is usually much, much younger. So Detroit city does something very, very similar where all of their revenues from alcohol sales at the actual games go back to help fund basically an entire youth club, um, top to bottom, which is free. Um, mm-hmm. But it is youth. Greenville uh, FC is doing something very, very, very similar, but it's at the totally other end of the age range. I think it's like... Six yeah, theirs, through, theirs is very six, young. Yeah, six through eight year olds, mm-hmm. and I don't think it has anything to do with alcohol sales per se. Because I mean, I'm if I'm not mistaken, they're they're still kind of sorting that out unto mm-hmm. itself. But that's also it's it's free, and it's going to be from game day, game day revenue. And I really like their model too because I think they are in a fight for their lives personally with mm-hmm. Greenville Triumph coming to town and. 
that's a really, really, really good way for them to kind of ingratiate themselves with families. And, and if they want to become known as the family club, we're not the professional club. We're, we're not going to, you know, wow you with the glitz and glam. But, you know, we'll, we'll expose your young child to soccer and you guys can come out and spend a couple, you know, months in the middle of the summer with us out, out at what we're doing at Greenville FC. So mm-hmm. Now, do you think with the academy uh, structure that Asheville is doing, do you think that's going to uh, disrupt maybe the relationship with some of the other clubs in town? Or do you think that might uh, push them to try to uh, have more initiatives themselves to try to better, to, to better themselves because Asheville's, you know, stepping into the youth game now? From from everything I understand, I, I think it, it's, again, in an effort to uh, supplement, not replace. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I don't know that there ever was maybe a, a proper meeting where they all sat down at a table and had those conversations. But I do think that the age range that they chose was a very specific age range not to step on those toes and to, again, provide that bridge of... Um, the Asheville City season is during the summer. It, it might be, um, it's certainly after the college season, obviously. But, I mean, this this is a, a 16 to 20-year-old academy. So, I mean, uh, freshmen who, who might um, have gone to local high schools or even graduated out of some of these youth clubs and gone to Division II schools or... Uh, just went and experienced a coaching style and maybe didn't break the top tier they can now come home for the summer and still be in a um, situation where they can learn. Um, so it, it's certainly not meant to compete against those youth clubs in town. I think it's actually meant to enhance and provide a pathway past what those youth clubs could provide. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think this is something that other clubs uh, can replicate even if they aren't in the NPSL? Because uh, Tobacco Road, at least, doesn't have a uh, their own youth club. They kind of do a, a bunch of camps throughout the year and, and do some futsal camps as well. But they don't have their own actual academy or they don't have a youth club under them. And uh, other clubs, exactly like what you said earlier, with Greenville's kind of doing their own things, very similar to this. Now, do you think this is something that other clubs can kind of replicate as well, even if they don't have their own uh, youth club and maybe don't have that money coming in? I want to say yes. I would like to think that um, Asheville City made a very, again, deliberate decision to wait till this year to do it. And I I think somebody must have looked at, at, I'm assuming, alcohol sales and said, you know, if we tacked on, because alcohol at the games is very, very, very reasonably priced. Um, I would venture to say it's probably the most well-priced possibly in the state for for that level of a sporting event. So I'm I'm sure they ran the numbers and just said, you know, if we were to tack on $1 to all of these sales, potentially what could we do with that? And instead of every sale, they're just basically saying if somebody has a few beers in a game, we're just going to tack $1 onto the collective and, mm-hmm. and move on with it. I, I think the infrastructure club-wise, not building-wise, not stadium-wise, 
would really, really have to be strong to replicate this. And that's what Asheville City has to its advantage right now. It's it's well established. We we were getting very regular attendance between the first two years and the women's game. Um, that's and I think that may have been what said, yeah, we, we, we can do this because we know that we open those doors and we're getting a guaranteed 1,500 people per game, men or women's, rain or shine. Um, we, we're going to cap out at 2,500, but we can guarantee 1,500 every time we open those gates. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Tim, it was a pleasure chatting with you about uh, local soccer and uh, can't wait to talk to you more. Absolutely, Zach. Thank you so much for having me on, and I, I really do wish you guys uh, good luck this upcoming season. Um, do high wire pride, pride down there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I forgot to, to mention that as well, that, uh, that <laughs> high wire recently opened up their, uh, their stores, and they actually uh, have been kind of, I don't know what the uh, formal relationship is like, but they kind of do have some uh, sponsorship deal as well with uh, North Carolina FC as well, so it's yeah. really cool to see yeah. Asheville kind of come into the triangle and within a couple months partner with both of the local uh, soccer teams in town. So it's, it's super cool to have a, a, a big brewery like that here in the state that, that loves to work with the local soccer teams. Yeah, they're great guys there. They really do understand, um, like, again, that, that community power of the world's most popular sport. So absolutely. But thank you again, Zach. I really appreciate it.